king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Once again, it is time to get settled down. So I'll give you a minute to find your seat. And then we're going to ask the Lord for his blessing. So get settled down. All right, ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now we ask that the Holy Spirit, who is present among us, would quiet our hearts and minds by your Spirit, God, to help us focus on what's before us, the most important thing, the word of the living God that's able to cut into our hearts down deep and do a profound and lasting work that blesses us, that helps us, comforting us and guiding us. We pray for ears that can truly hear what your spirit is saying to each and every one of us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So here we are in the book of Romans talking about this great salvation of ours, eternal life. And while it's a free gift for all who believe, God does have a desired expectation of those who receive it freely. There's a way that he expects us to respond and to live. Yes, it's free salvation, but if it's genuine, it will produce an outcome, a response. And that is what our passage is going to be about this morning. So if you're new and you're joining us, uh, we are making our way through this tremendous book of Romans. And uh, chapters one through eight really focus on the gospel. We just finished up five-part series, really, on chapter 8, how God takes helpless, hopeless, lost sinners and uh, reconciles them to himself in love. He had sent Christ to die on the cross for us, and because of our simple trust and faith in him alone, We get everything for nothing but just simply trusting him. That's what the book of Romans 1 through 8 is about. And boy, it ends on a high note, does it not? Last week we finished it off of chapter 8, this incredible security for all believers who trust in God, who are joined to Christ. And because we're joined to Christ through faith, that we cannot be condemned, we cannot be defeated, and we cannot be separated from his love. And so Paul concluded last week, if God is for us, who could be against us? Amen. Amen. So now what comes next? Well, let me show you by way of a chart 
here's how the book of Romans very simply can be divided. Chapters 1 through 8, which we just completed last week, is all about the gospel, what God has done for us. And we've just been mentioning that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his great love for us, laying down his life and dying so that whosoever believes in him should not perish. And all of this wonderful blessing that God has done on our behalf, chapters one through eight. Now, at the end of eight, he begins to talk in chapter nine about what I've been calling the elephants in the room, because in chapter eight, it's all about the church, former pagans in every nation coming to know Christ and the incredible blessings of salvation and eternal life for his people, in quotes. Now, the question after Romans 8 is, well, wait a second here. What about his chosen people? Israel, the Jews. The whole Old Testament has promises about the people of Israel. And yet, even after such a great salvation and the whole earth, as it were, has turned to receive the gospel, so much of the earth, but what about Israel? So the question is that he's going to answer in chapter 9, 10, and 11 is what happened to the Jews? Uh, In fact, in the New Testament, they're kind of the bad guys. The, the, The Jews are running all over the leadership is opposing this Jesus, opposing the gospel. And so after this beautiful um, exposition of the gospel in Romans chapter 8, he starts saying, hey, let me tell you what's going on with Israel. Because the question is, uh, where do they fit now? Have they stumbled forever? Has God rejected his people, his chosen people? What's up with them? So he says, as a matter of fact, let me explain it. Now, most commentators call chapters 9 through 11 a parenthesis, a a sacred digression. Because as Paul is a preacher, he kind of got carried away a little bit, rightfully so, the Holy Spirit inspiring him. But what happens in 9 through 11, long story short, is it gets a little complicated talking about predestination and all kinds of things, how he's going to deal with Israel different from the church and all of this. In chapter 12, once he tells you the short answer to, is God done with the Jews? The short answer is, uh, no. He is going to save the nation. Romans 11 and verse 25 says that the nation itself will convert in those last days shortly before what is what we call the battle of Armageddon. Israel turns to her Messiah and is saved. Now, in Romans chapter 12, he starts back on the theme from chapter 8, where he left off with this great salvation and the mercies of God and how we're eternally secure. And then he picks up in chapter 12 and says, then how shall we live? All right, here's what I want to do. It's Christmas time. I don't want to just start talking about theological conundrums, all right? Do you know what a conundrum is? That's why I don't want to talk about it. I I want to take 9, 10, and 11, lift it out for a moment, and for the Christmas season, begin to 
look at 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, finish the book because they're Christian exhortations in light of what God has done for you. How should you be living? Now that's gonna be helpful during Christmas time with all those people, all those relatives and everything, how we should be living, amen? <laughs> we need a little help. Anybody need a little help out there? Yes, amen. So we're gonna do that, okay? Then, when we're finished with the book, guess what? We'll come back and close out with chapters 9, 10, and 11, verse by verse, all the way through. And so it's just about timing, all right? So with that, we are going to look and pick up at Chapter 12, we have fast-forwarded past all of the information about what God has in store for his chosen people, Israel. And now, even commentators say of chapter 12 and verse 1 that you're looking at, now he tags back to the last part of Romans chapter 8. Perfect. We're going to pick up his train of thought right here. Now, some context he has just said. For eight chapters, he took undeserving sinners who were hostile, powerless, and at odds with God, didn't want God in their lives, who would nail him to a cross if he appeared in the flesh. He took those people and he predestined them in Christ because he set his love upon them and did what they could never do in their own power and offered his own life as a trade and so that we could be saved. We could never, he, now he uses all the, the bad things for good. Our good things he guards forever and the best is yet to come. And now he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is what worship is. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to, to test and to approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will for your life. So many Christians want to know what God wants. What's God's will for my life? This is the text for you. You will always know God's will when you do the following. When you surrender the control of your life to God. When you resist being squeezed into the mold of the world. And when God, by his spirit, is renewing your mind then you will know. Now you may ask yourself on occasion, am I really saved? Am I a true Christian? Or if you are sure of your salvation, you may wonder why you, your Christian life is so weak, why you stumble so much, why it's not as rewarding, why you're not effective and productive like you, you feel you could be. The answer right here, the heart of the gospel the secret sauce, okay? Here it is, is chapter 12, verses one and two. It's the heartbeat. It's the engine. It's the inspiration. It's what Christianity is. Christianity is a response to being given the grace of God. The moral and ethical obligations of the Christian is a thank you, is a response 
because of the grace of God given to us. And we look at the grace of God as inspiration to serve him and to do his will. And so this text divides quite nicely. He really says this, if you've received the love of God and the goodness of Christ and God has lavished his love upon you, this is the kind of person you should be. This is what you should be doing. Two things that divides quite nicely. You should be surrendering your life and you should be renewing your mind, all right? And so we're going to take a look at that this morning now. So let's uh, isolate that first verse. We've only got two this morning. So that makes things very easy. And so we're going to take a look at here, surrendering our lives as a plea. That's what it is. And now it kind of makes sense. Here's the question. The question is, you're reasonable people. God thinks we're reasonable. He says, look, what I've done for you for eight chapters, now I've got a favor After what I've done for you, I've got a small favor by comparison, and I just want you to live for me. I want you to do my will. I'm going to save you. I'm going to predestine you to to heaven. I'm going to wipe out all of your sins. I'm going to give you a new life. And I've got this favor to ask. In response, would you live for me? And here's how you would live for me in verses uh, 1 and 2. And so we're taking a look at that. Now, the plea. It's a strong word there first in your verse. It's a call to one side. It's like Paul is putting his arm around the family. The brothers and sisters say, hey, come here. I, I, I need you to pay attention. I'm really pleading with you. It's a warm word. It's a passionate word. He's excited about it. One uh, writer put it more colorfully this way, when the urge here, it's a good swift kick in the spiritual pants offered with the highest love and the noblest of intentions and the highest motive. That motive is to help us cooperate with the God who has redeemed us that our lives would be a blessing, not only to us, but to others around us and to God himself. The answer here is how to please God. The second verse is this is what pleases God. This is what it says right here in the first verse as well, that when we do these things, we please God and we want to please God. No, so notice the, him imploring us or pleading with us to hand over the controls to God. He does that based on a theological anchor of a foundation. So in other words, it's always the case, right thinking produces right living. So right thinking about God, about who he is, how great he is, the greatness of what he's done for us, who we are, undeserving as we are, we still have trouble being devoted to him, even now converted to him. We still have issues and challenges but God is good to us. And so the the plea is coming to us by saying, look, you have a basis in history to inspire you to do what God is asking you to do. So one writer said, otherwise, these words to yield the control of your life to God would simply be more religious jabber, just advice on how to be a good, nice person, which can't save your soul right? Nice people don't go to heaven. 
Good people don't go to heaven. Bad people don't go to hell. Saved people who have faith in God go to heaven. And people who reject Christ, good or bad, end up perishing. And so he says, I, I beg you to do what all Christians must do, surrender control of your life. If you've received the love, the grace, the kindness of God, the new life, then first things first, Christianity 101, let go of the reins and let God direct your life. That's what he's saying here. One writer said, if God had not done what he did for us in Christ, there'd be no compelling reason why we should now do what he says. So in other words, he's saying, I urge you in view of God's mercy, check out what God did. Do you see the obligation on your part? Do you see that? Yes, free gift. Yes, how wonderful. But the free gift was costly and now he's asking for the favor now for my investment, can I get a little return? Like your love, like your allegiance, like your devotion, that you belong to me and do, do life my way because I redeemed you. The word redeem means to buy back. Now, uh, one person said as well, God's, God has the moral authority to ask and expect us to surrender our lives to him because of what he's done for us. So I was talking to a Muslim and having a great conversation uh, with this guy. And this guy was passing out leaflets in San Francisco. And I said, so, you know, what, what did Allah do for you? And uh, he says, it's not what Allah has done. We serve him him. That's what we do. It's not what he does for us. And I said, well, I've got a really good deal with, uh, with the God that I serve because he came not to be served, but to serve us and lay down his life. That is God in a body washing dirty feet on the night he was betrayed. That is fullness of deity in bodily form, the exact representation of his being, the fullness of God as a human being. And he didn't stop by washing dirty feet. He went to that cross and bled out God in a body for us. And then he says, would you mind living the rest of your life for me? Would that be okay? That's what he's saying here. He's just saying, I did all of this for you. Now, I'm just expecting that you might want to serve me as like a gesture of thanks or gratitude. Amen? Are you getting to the point? Listen, that's the person who could tell me to stop doing what I love doing. That's wrong. The only person I will do that for is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has the moral authority. After what he's done for me and what he's given me, he can tell me anything. And I feel an obligation. And that's what he's saying. In view of God's mercy to you, knowing where you were headed, where you deserve to go, to perish without God's intervention, you were right going off the cliff like the rest of them. But God intervened, and now what? Now you just go, leave church and go your merry way and do whatever you want and think the thoughts and feel the way and say what you want. 
and do what you, that is a heresy of gigantic proportions that we take a free gift that we claim to be Christians and know Christ and then do our own thing. He says it does not work that way. There should be moral transformation and that's what these verses are talking about. So God sees us as reasonable and he says, Jesus laid it down for you. You gotta lay it down and do it his way. It's gratitude. So here's what he says. He says, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So he's got that picture of an altar. The Roman Christians, Gentiles as they were, they knew what that meant. They're altars for pagan gods. But in Paul's mind, he's thinking of the altar there at the temple where people came to bring an, an animal sacrifice which pointed prophetically to the work of Christ. So for 1,500 years, the Jews were uh, offering dead sacrifices. That, that's how they ended up on the altar there. Primarily to point to the work Christ would do to take away the sins of the world. And this is how it would work. You would bring that animal to the altar and you would lay your hands on the head of that animal and you would confess in front of the priest your sins that estranged you from God onto that animal that had no part in your sin and that animal's throat was slit right there and the blood collected right there that you would see that somebody paid for your sins. And then there was a temporary uh, uh, renewal of fellowship between you and God. Now, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he said that was 1,500 years of dress rehearsal. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so no more temporary fixes where you have to slip some barred yarn animal in and say, okay, you know, guilty, guilty, put your punishment on this innocent being, as it were, and now I'm restored, Jesus says. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Permanent, once and for all, that whosoever simply believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. So that was the idea of the altar. But the altar, the Jews would bring all kinds of offerings. And so here's his point. There was a problem with the offerings in that it became very easy in their day and ours to just bring stuff, but the heart was far removed. So they would bring harvests, which would equal money, agricultural harvests and, and uh, produce and all kinds of things to offer to the temple to maintain the work of God in that place and to provide for those who ministered in the temple much like we do today. And so that supported the work. It kept it going, but it became very easy to just bring the gift. And God started, God said to the Pharisees, the Lord said to the Pharisees, listen, he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Jesus said, the Pharisees were meticulous givers. They were always on the altar offering, offering, offering. But here's what he's saying. Here's what I want. When you go by the altar, I want you on it. When the plate is being passed, I want you to put your heart and your mind and your tongue and your, your thoughts and your goals and your dreams. I want the whole package because I died for the whole package. 
I want the whole thing. So when the plate goes by, I'm not interested, he said, in your offering if it doesn't, isn't accompanied with your heart, your body, your life. That's what the body means there. So it was so easy to write a check and then do your own thing and then justify yourself by saying, well, I go to church. I'm there every time the doors are open and I give uh, all this on the altar. And he says, listen, in view of what God has done for you and bled out for you and saved you from the judgment and wrath of God, he wants the whole thing. He wants you to put yourself in the offering box. Now, in our case, you wouldn't fit in that box. (laughs) That's what he's saying. But the problem with a living sacrifice is that it can get up and walk off the altar. That's the problem. So we have to continually be surrendering ourselves to the will of God, continually resisting the world's pressure to conform our lives to that wrong way and be renewed. That's the point of this Passage, And so he says, when you put your heart in the offering, then all the other things are really good things. And he says, put your body in there, your tongue, your tongue. The things that we talk about, he says, no, 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 no. It belongs to me. I bought your tongue, your body. You need to say things that honor that are right, that speak the truth. No more lying, no more cussing. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Ephesians chapter four, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Why? Because you put your tongue in the plate. You put your body in the plate. You put your mind in your plate, in the plate. That's why all of life must reflect the morals and the ethics that are in the Bible. You can't just say one thing, I'm a Christian and do your own thing. The definition of being a Christian is a surrendered life that does the will of God out of love. That's how you know that God has done a work in your heart and that you're going to end up in heaven. So the tongue, the feet, not doing your own thing anymore. The feet are on the straight and narrow path doing something else. The hands, you put your hands in the offering. Your hands are to do the work of God so that whatever it is, whatever vocation in life, whatever hobby, when you're on vacation, when you're raising your kids, when you're doing the dishes 24-7, you belong to God. And you need to do life as God would have you do life. That's what he's saying. And now he says, which is your spiritual act of worship. Now, some of your translations pick up on the word spiritual can mean reasonable or fitting or appropriate. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, when your whole life is consecrated on the altar to God, that's when you worship him. Uh, One writer said, maybe we need to enlarge our, our idea of what it means to worship God. More than Sunday mornings, more than singing songs, it's about holding our tongues and swallowing our pride and treating our spouses with love, being other-centered, abstaining from sin, forgiving those who hurt us. When we're choosing his way instead of our own way because we belong to him and we love him, that's what God calls worship. That's worship. 
Let a friend, let's call him Frank. You know why? That's his name. <laughs> so we're, we're uh, ri- riding along. And even I, who drive slow, uh, I was like, dude, come on. We need to get going here. And he had slowed down. And he, I said, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm worshiping the Lord with my foot. How is that? He says, look at the speed limit, bro. We are called in Romans 13 to obey the laws to be ideal citizens. And even though I prefer to drive faster, I don't own my foot. I don't own my life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, You were bought with a price you do not own yourself. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You've been purchased with the price. And so that was his point, is, is that with our minds, with our thoughts, where we, what the words that we let come out of our mouth, we exist to please God. And he says, God says, now that is worship. And uh, I have here written, if someone bails you out of something terrible at great cost to themselves, it's reasonable you show some love and gratitude. And the way that we show love and gratitude to God is to yield the controls. The world says, oh, find yourself. And the Lord says, lose yourself and you'll find yourself. Find me and you'll find who you're supposed to be. Put God first. And so that's what he's saying. Just give up the reins and live life for me. Uh, So a surrendered will. Now, and we finish up with the verse 2 here, what that looks like, okay? So step one, of course, is, is becomes his life, his agenda, his dreams, uh, his commands come first. What did Jesus say? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and being right with him, and then everything else will fall into place. That's really what's going on here. So verse two kind of says, and here's how God wants to work once You've got your hands off the controls at the helm. Do not conform any longer, verse 2, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, and only then, will you be able to figure out what God's will for your life is. Okay, so let's take a look at this. How to carry out this yielding and surrendering our lives to the God who yielded and surrendered his life so that we might live. How do we do it? Well, in your verse that you're looking at, it's put first negatively. We need to stop doing something. And then he puts it positively in the same verse. We need to start doing something else. So let's start with what we need to stop doing. We need to put a halt to conforming to the pattern of this world. So what does that mean? Well, you know, the world has a lot of meanings. So for God so loved the world, that's just the general meaning of the world. And most of you know that the world also has a negative connotation in the New Testament. It means really human life, human society with God left out. In other words, in Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord is speaking through the prophet and he says, my ways are higher than your ways. 
As heaven is as, as high away from the earth, so are my ways different than your ways. So the world has a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. It's based on human understandings, which are very often in, contrary to God and his word. The world has the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the coveting of the eyes, all of this stuff. I mean, just for the example of, you know, not letting the world squeeze you into its mold is one version, which is really nice. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Christians who have come out of the world can say, been there, done that. We played that game. Now, God has called us out. Listen, the word for church is ekklesia in the Greek, and it means to be called out. So what happens is the gospel goes out in the earth, and those who hear and those who believe and those who open their heart, God goes in by the Holy Spirit, gives them new life, and plucks them out of the world system. And it says in 1 John that the world system lies under the control of the evil one. Yes, God is sovereign over all things, but this world system is not answering to God, but being directed by his adversary, the evil one. So says the Bible. And so, you know, the world has a thing. What does the world tell you to do with your enemy? Hate that guy. You want to know what he did? He's my enemy. I hate him. And then the Lord says to the Christian, oh, you don't have the right to do that because I want you to love them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. What? Do I want to do that? Of course I don't want to do it, but Christians are obligated. Why? Because we put ourselves in the offering. Now we belong to God, and God says, that's not how I work. Let me deal with your enemy. I'm way more able to do a fine job with your enemy. But for your heart, I need it to be sweet in there. I don't need the poison of anger and hate and bitterness. I don't need that. It'll, it'll hurt you. So we've got this uh, crazy kind of upside down world. God's ways are very different. He says they're going to pressure you into doing it their way. You've come out of that. You need to resist, resist, resist because it'll shipwreck you. Man, it's everywhere. The messages are bombarding us all the time. You know, forgiven. We're supposed to be forgiving, not holding grudges, all kinds of things on social media. We get bombarded with 5,000 ads. I don't even believe this is possible. But if you Google around, you'll see it's like 2,000, 5,000 ad messages a day to the average Christian. The world is just sending messages, and those messages are not from God necessarily. And so he says, this is what you have to do. First step is say, no, I will not conform. And it's going to cost you. This is what it's going to cost you. Listen to what Peter said. He said, uh, he, he told them, listen, of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. And so they slander and mock you. That's out of the Bible. They had the same problem back then. Oh, God help the high schooler. And I know many of them who say things like, well, I'm waiting until I'm married to give myself to my husband because that's what the Bible says to do. 
because I don't own my own body. They don't say all of this part. <laughs> they, they reason they don't own their own body. God says, listen, I know how the world does it, and I know how the world's going to pressure you, right? But in my economy, the way we do life is that sexual relations is meant for the marriage covenant, Alone and all outside sex outside of marriage is called fornication, and it's a sin. This is the way, one of the ways the world pressures the Christians, and the Christian says, hey, you know what? Been there, done that. Used to do stuff like that, but then Christ came into my life. I call myself a Christian. I got to do life God's ways. Come hell or high water. And the Bible says they're going to heap insults upon you because they don't like you flashing the light over there, shining in the darkness. It irritates people's eyes, you know? And so they, they give people like that a hard time. Somebody told me, I'm checking out of a store, and um, I said, so what are you going to do this weekend? And he goes, oh, I'm going to get wasted, Right? <laughs> Oh, I can't wait to get out of here and get wasted. The very word should tell you. Is that smart? <laughs> the very word should say, uh, maybe you don't want to do that. You, you know? And so I said, what do you want to do? What are you going to do? And he's going, ah, I'm going to get wasted. And then he says, and what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> oh, I didn't have the heart to tell him. <laughs> oh. No, I did. Well, actually, I'm a pastor. Yeah, I'm going to be preaching because I'm a pastor. You know, I'm going to be preaching about how not to waste your life. Gosh, that's the world. The world, the world is on you 24-7. It never lets go. And he's saying, listen. You've got to say no. That word is to, is to resist, to renounce, to reject. No. Take the heat. Take the heat. Look what they did to our master. He told them what they didn't want to hear. He said he testified that their, their deeds were evil, and that is why they rejected him. And what do we got to say? Well, what do we got to say? We only say what he said. And so we get the same reception as our Lord and Savior got. But he says, listen, there's going to be a Christianity version the world has for you. This is what we think Christians should be. Oh, and it's really hot today. It's everywhere. Oh, Christians should be uh, accepting of this and accepting of that. Listen, I am accepting of everything that the Bible is accepting of. But when Jesus starts drawing lines and saying, this is wrong, this is right, then I'm bound because why? I put myself in the offering. He bled and died for me. He said, will you do things my way? Can, will you do my will? Not the world's, not your friends, not your husband, not your bosses, but first and foremost, the will of God. And how do you find that out? It's right there in the Bible. It's very clear. It's very clear. And so he says, watch out. It's relentless. Don't take your cues from Hollywood or your co-workers or social media, the philosophies, but the word of God, and it will cost you. So daily surrender first, right? Daily resisting the world, and then that makes way for the positive of being renewed. Now, get this. He says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Sorry, no. 
but be transformed. Now, here's the positive by the renewing of your mind. First thing I want to tell you is some good news. In the Greek, I wrote this down somewhere. It is the present passive imperative mood of the verb. You know what that means? You're not doing it. It's being done to you. So a better understanding is allow God, allow God to do a work of renewal. That word is related to the word we get metamorphosis from. To change one thing from one thing into another. And he says, let God, while you're staving off the world, in that space, let God change your mind and, and catch this. Willpower is only good for so long. You're going to no, no, no. Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. He says, I wanted to go deeper than that. The Holy Spirit, once he gets in deep into that part of you that actually wants to do the right thing and doesn't want to do the wrong thing, I'm telling you what, life is so much easier when your heart and mind are on the same page with God. It's trying to, to, to use willpower when your heart and mind aren't totally there. They're not totally convinced. They're not totally renewed. So he says, listen, if you want a long and lasting, profound, effective and productive Christian life, blessed, then you need to let God change your mind. It's a beautiful thought. Metamorphosis. Let God change you from one thing to another. I mean, you can't just slap wings on some worm you find and call it a butterfly, right? That's not going to work. You need to be changed, man. It's like this Christian, oh, I'm going to start in your own power. Oh, you're going to start doing uh, the right things and stop lying and stop lusting and stop looking at porn or whatever it is in your own power. Are you kidding me? He says, you've got to say no first, stop the behavior, and then let the Holy Spirit impact your brain, your heart. The control command center needs to be metamorphosized. <laughs> Is that such a word? Really? Praise the Lord for miracles. You need to be changed. I think change is a lot easier to say. It'll be well worth the effort. And here's what he says. He says, then you'll know what God wants. Then you'll know what kind of person he's designed you to be. Then you'll know whether to go left or right. Then you'll know what you're supposed to be doing. That's what we want to know. You'll be the person God created you to be as you continually let go of control and offer yourself to him as you continually say no to the world. No, 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 that's not right. And as you continually let the Holy Spirit renew you, aha, he says, you will know what God's good will, pleasing, perfect, you'll have peace. Now, a renewed mind. A renewed mind has wisdom. It doesn't fall for deception. A renewed mind knows how to get 
out of some kind of how to diffuse an angry, tense situation relationally. A renewed mind knows how to humble itself. It knows when to speak, when to hold the tongue. A renewed mind is, is, is the difference between um, progressing and maturing in your Christian life and being blessed or being stuck in a rut because you're, you're blind. How can God, how can you ever know God's will when you're pulling the reins, when you're in charge? How can God ever lead somebody who's got an agenda? If you've got an agenda, you're turning right. I mean, he can say, hey, you who over here, but you're, you're bent on this way. So how can you ever know unless you do these things? And that's the point of the verses. You have to let go or hold with a loose grip at least, right? That song, Jesus Take the Wheel, right? He does want your hands on the wheel, right? Jesus Take the Wheel, you're going to end up, you know, seeing Jesus. <laughs> it took you like three seconds to get that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we do have lives. But in those lives, we're yielded in the moment. So you're thinking, should I really say that? Should I really be doing this? I call myself a Christian. Oh, everybody calls themselves a Christian. Everybody, James chapter two says, stop telling me you're a Christian. Show me by the way you live, James chapter two. Everybody in America, they raise their hands. Yes, I believe in God. That doesn't save you. A mere intellectual assent that there is a God cannot save your soul. When you believe in God biblically, it's a trusting, it's a putting your heart in the offering. It's a union. It's an encounter with the living God that says goodbye to your sinful ways in baptism, dead to my old life, raised up and washed to a new way of life, empowered by a spirit that comes in, the Holy Spirit, and changes you to stop with the world, the world's way, and start living like you say you are a Christian. Oh, my, my audience here, my congregation that I shepherd, I want to spare you a surprise that when you see him face to face, that you are shocked thinking one way that you were okay. I was a Christian. I did the religious thing and I thought I was okay. And then you find out you wasted so much time doing it the world's way and you didn't even know him. You were a nice churchgoer, a nice person. You give the shirt off your back and all of that. Very nice. But that's not how you get to heaven. Yeah, get to heaven by trusting in the Savior and he changes you, he comes in. And then as evidence that you are truly saved, there's a moral transformation. Without that moral transformation, without you saying no to the world and no to sin and yes to God and doing it his way, then you don't have salvation. We, yeah, we all struggle. Nobody's perfect, but you're limping in the right direction. Amen? There are three things that you need to be doing if you're a born-again Christian. Number one, continually surrendering to his will. Continually offering your whole life to God. Every morning, every evening, every moment, I belong to you. 
Number two, continually saying no to the pressure of the worldly way of doing things. Number three, letting the Holy Spirit through the word of God, through the teaching and preaching of the word, through Christian fellowship, through prayer, through worship, let him renew your mind. And then, and only then, will you get to see God's perfect, pleasing, good will for your life. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we thank you for your great love, your mercy. And in light of these mercies, we once again offer our lives to you as a living sacrifice. We're grateful for the benefit of coming to you. The one who said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. God, it just always sounds like a lot of work. And then you say, don't try this. (laughs) It's light. The living with God and doing your will is what we were designed to do. So, Father, remind us of the sweetness and the contentment and the joy of a clean conscience and, and living the way we proclaim our lives to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.